You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from If you love something, if you have a strong passion for something. Life as we experience it's a big act, and the player is you. Because it's in feeling that change and transformation can happen, right? You said, if you don't feel it, you can't heal it. It's through feeling that we truly heal and come into wholeness because energy is supposed to move through us. We're not stagnant. We're not here to be stagnant. And when we're stagnant, that's when physical diseases manifest. What up, fam? Welcome to another episode of Life Beyond the Game. Wow. What a journey life is, huh? I've really been enjoying recording these shows for all of you, the conversations have been super impactful. Uh, and I have a few really good episodes coming up. Today's episode is with a incredible man. His name is Ober. And he has an insane story. Uh, a story of adversity, of challenge, of overcoming seemingly impossible odds with the family dynamic that he grew up in and his confrontation with suicide and on the edge, on the verge of taking his own life, he had a mystical experience that saved his life, connecting with the source of his being, the creator, and what he did with that experience and how he alchemized it into the journey of what he's doing now is truly incredible and inspiring to me and to so many. He's a founder of a community called Sacred Sons, and they do incredible work for men and take them through these initiatory processes, which is something that is near and dear to my heart. And one of the things that I often refer to in the show that is really lacking in our society and our culture and the work that he does uh, is truly, truly incredible. And it's extremely powerful. I know a bunch of people who have gone through their program and who are part of that community. And one of the things that really inspires me about Aubert is his non-complacency he understands how much work there is to be done in the world and how many people uh, need support and need an opportunity to go on this healing path and to rediscover the truth of who they are. And he continues to evolve and bring forth bigger and bigger visions to support more and more people. And I am just deeply honored and grateful to have had an opportunity to sit down with him and have a powerful conversation I hope you guys get as much out of it as I did. Uh, it was really something special. If somebody comes to mind while you're listening to this episode, go ahead and share the episode with them. Take your phone out and uh, just click that share link. Send them a text. Say, I was thinking about you. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Great way to support this podcast. Right now, if you don't already, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple or YouTube, wherever you're watching this or listening to this, so you don't miss an episode in the future. And a great way to support this podcast is to 
is to leave a review. Leave a review and say a few nice things. That really goes a long way in helping me grow the podcast, reach more people, and hopefully get to a point where I can begin monetizing this thing so that it is supporting me and my family. And uh, it's a, it takes a lot to, to produce a podcast. And uh, I'm really grateful, especially, you know, have the studio and all of this equipment and uh, the post-production. So I love you all and uh, enjoy the episode. Before we get started, I want to actually share, because if you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, I've been talking a lot about the Heart Collective, which is my baby. It's my dream. It's my vision for a more beautiful world. And is really focused on bringing together community. And unfortunately, I was unable to execute on that vision of bringing together 40 high-impact leaders. I had over 200 applicants for that community, talked to over 50 people. And um, there was people, I had, had a handful of people join and uh, another, you know, 20, 25 around the edge. The only thing is that just needed more time, needed more time. I had these river rafting expeditions, uh, two permits this summer, and one of them in, uh, in mid-June or late June, and um, just couldn't fill it up in time and just needed a longer longer process to bring it together. So what I'm doing is pivoting slightly and going through a deep grieving process of there's a lot of lessons that I'll be sharing more about. If you want to keep track of those lessons, make sure you sign up for my newsletter in the show notes. I'll be sharing some uh, writing about uh, some of the stuff that's unfolding as an entrepreneur and the experience of failure and all of the energy, time, resources put into building something that um, didn't work, didn't say it didn't really hit and resonate with people because that's the encouraging thing is there's so many people that wanted to be a part of it. Um, it just couldn't find the right 40 to uh, to bring the community together in, in, the, in the right time. So going to take a step back, going to slow down that process and uh, and really take my time to uh, to feel into what I want to create in the world. And I've learned a lot over the last three years and uh, going to alchemize those lessons and uh, bring them forth in a really beautiful way. You know, the world's changing so fast right now anyway. It's really crazy. I don't know if you guys have seen all the advancements of AI technology coming on. It's rapidly taking over and uh, not in the, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see it as taking over in the, in the kind of Terminator sense. Um, but there is a lot of, um, a lot of really cool things that are going to make our lives a lot easier. Um, and, but it's going to be very incredibly, extremely disruptive in a lot of ways that I can't even comprehend, but I can feel. And it's going to happen rapidly and quickly. Um, and I don't know what that's going to do to the world. But I think for me, I'm excited to have space to navigate this ever-shifting landscape. Um, and although the Heart Collective as a community and the year-long program I was selling is, uh, is no longer going through, we still have this August permit. So we're still going to get out on the river. There's about 10 spots left for this August 22nd to 27th river rafting expedition. So it's going to be a standalone retreat experience with me and a couple other incredible facilitators. And we're going to be doing, uh, it's just really getting together with incredible humans, getting out on the river, reconnecting with nature, remembering the truth of who we are. We're going to be doing some, some really good 
group work and programming. Got an incredible musician coming out there that's going to play us and serenade us with uh, with this beautiful, beautiful sound. And yeah, we're going to get real. We're going to open our hearts. We're going to connect with each other. And it's just a really powerful experience to to reset, to remember, to reconnect. And with everything that's going on with AI stuff like I was talking about, or maybe you're incredibly busy or feeling super distracted or weighed down by the world, this uh, five-day experience is a really great way to to uh, come back to yourself and to come hang out with me and some really cool people. And uh, it's a lot more accessible price point too. So I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Hope to see some of you uh, sign up so that we can uh, hang out and connect and grow and expand. All right. Without further ado, I love you all. Thank you all so much for the support. Remember to follow my newsletter, follow the show, and uh, share it with friends. That all is super supportive to me. And uh, we're just getting started. This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. And with every death, there is a rebirth. And I'm excited to see the phoenix rise from the ashes once again. I hope you enjoy this episode with my good buddy, Aubert. How you feeling, man? I'm feeling good, brother. Yeah. So grateful to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that beautiful prayer beforehand. I, I like to do breath, like a, like a couple rounds of breath work just to drop in, come into coherence, open our hearts and regulate our nervous systems. And every time I do it, it's like, when I first started podcasting, I was so nervous about even taking a few breaths with somebody. Because yeah. like, what are they going to think? It's weird. And now I'm like, <laughs> no, this is what I do because it just makes for... Like when you come into coherence, you can feel it. And then yeah. just regulating and slowing down from our, our days. We both came, you know, from different kind of lives and <laughs> things going on and different stuff. And now now we're here and, you know, I usually set an intention and, and you, you brought in such a beautiful prayer. I've really felt the energy of it and, you know, calling out the little boys in us and allowing for us to speak and to feel safe, to share our stories. It's been a part of, big part of my journey of, of, this fear of being seen and this fear of rejection. And it's really tied up into, you know, my, my religious upbringing, but mm. also, you know, with my parents and, and really the belief was like kind of the top and then anchoring into them and always felt like I was scared of what they were going to think specifically. Sure, you know? sure. And when I talk about my own healing journey and obviously it's really tied to my parental dynamics and my upbringing. And I always had this idea of, I had a really, good childhood, nothing to complain about. Very privileged in a lot of ways. But as I've gone on this deeper journey and uncovering some of the unconscious things that make me tick and some of my triggers and some of my fears and, and getting to the root of where they kind of originated from, um, it's nobody's fault. Everybody's doing the best they can. But, you know, getting to a point where allowing that little boy within myself to to really be in my authentic expression and share my truth is really what this podcast is all about. And really what the frequency of that is what inspires people to go on their own journey. So I really, really appreciate that, brother. Yeah, brother, it's my honor. And uh, so often in this world, we forget, you know, it's a world that's almost anti-children in so many ways, you know, even from beginning from birth, right? Just the Western medical system and the, you know, approach to birth, it's, it's very traumatic, you know? Uh, we can argue that birth is one of the most beautiful acts that we get to experience in life. You know, bringing in the next generations and carrying on the lineage from the beginning of time. And the way that we sterilize it and try to control it 
and, you know, use all these external tools, you know, some that are like medicines, you know, and some that are just kind of the approach of control. You know, you can feel the control in hospitals and their control over birth and what it feels like. And so uh, I believe that it's uh, an imperative for us in these times to remember the inner child and reconnect with that innocence at our core. You know, and even if we are born into a lot of trauma, a lot of, you know, familial chaos as I was and uh, many other out there, it's our you know, responsibility to be able to hold that inner child and let him know or let her know that they are safe. That they are safe in our hearts, that they can ride shotgun, that we're driving the car, but they're welcome to ride shotgun with us and that we love them and that they're safe. Mm. Yeah, allowing, allowing the, the innocence of the child to be present within each of us because that is really how we enter the kingdom of heaven, right? is through that innocence and being able to integrate those aspects of self because, you know, there is an imprint of every experience we've had that was traumatic, you know, and, and the definition of trauma is just too much, too soon, too fast. And so it can be something, your, your state of consciousness now might be like, that wasn't a big deal because if I went through that right now, like, it wouldn't affect me. But, you know, three-year-old, five-year-old, seven-year-old, 12-year-old, one of my biggest experiences when I was 19, when I was actually, I would thought, you know, I'm a pretty mature adult, was still too much, too fast, too soon. And that makes an imprint when you're not able to fully feel and move through the energy that comes up in your nervous system. All of that gets imprinted and still lives within us and being able to create safety for that energy to come through. And it's a part of the work that you do. And we'll get more into that. But I want to I want to kind of start with your, your journey. You mm-hmm. know, I usually, this podcast is usually focused on bringing on former, former elite athletes. And, and the reason for that is because obviously my own journey, but I really enjoy it's such an easy access point into the deeper psychological processes. You know, an athlete uh, that makes it to such a pinnacle, having to go through the loss of such a massive part of their identity, mm. it's an easy access point to talk about, like, who am I? And who am I under this? And a lot of athletes, it's it's propelled them, just like myself, onto this deeper journey of self-discovery and healing because it, we're forced into that. And the intention there is to to inspire others to, to, to look deeper within themselves. And you weren't necessarily an elite athlete, but you found a lot of success in, you know, in, in the world of, of tech. And uh, so take us through kind of your, your journey of, of, of kind of your direction and, 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 and what you wanted to accomplish and achieve in life and, um, you know, the process of letting it all go. <laughs> That's a big question. That's a big question. Yes. We'll see where it takes us. <laughs> Yeah, for me, you know, really beginning in a, in a space of, you know, I didn't have religion. Like you said, you mentioned that religion was a piece for you. It wasn't a piece for me. It was rather the absence of religion and the carryover of my father's trauma from being raised in a Christian kind of potentially his mother was just overly Christian or as he perceived it. Interesting. So he, because he grew up in a Christian faith, didn't really resonate with it, created a lot of resistance to that. He decided to go complete opposite and raise his family in the absence of any type of connection to greater. Exactly. And you can say the pendulum swings. And so Mm -hmm. it swung and that's what I inherited. I grew up in that environment, an atheistic household where there was no sacred, there was no God, there was no greater, higher power. Like what you see is what you get. This is all there is. And there's, uh, you know, it, it kind of takes away the magic or at least it, it felt like 
what my friends and peers were experiencing and what I saw in their households. I was like, this is so different from what I have in mind, you know? And so with that, uh, just like my parents separating when I was young and having a lot of chaos and fighting, that was like one of the great biggest memories I have of my childhood is my parents fighting. It's like yelling back and forth. And it was just a chaotic and confusing environment to be, be raised in, you know, where mother and father uh, didn't have that bond of love between us, uh, between them. And, and I guess you could carry that over to us in a way. They were so busy fighting and being in their drama that they couldn't truly look out for us in the best way. I mean, they did their best as all parents do. Um, but that led me on a path uh, that was really dark at times. How did that, do you remember how you felt? Because I think that's a very powerful thing, especially for us as parents now and in raising and, and starting our own family. And I think a lot of our peers in the same kind of boat and, you know, having kids, like the energy between uh, the parents, uh, even though you might love each other, that energy, like kids really feel that and feel the disconnection. And they're, they're, they're so much more tuned into the subtleties of energy and frequency. So how did that make you, you feel? Do you remember if you could tap into that as a, as a child and any like specific experiences? Yeah. Yeah, really, it felt overwhelming. Like I was in a, I think, a continual state of overwhelm. And there were, of course, moments where my dad was gone and it was just kind of more of my mother kind of stewing in anger or overwhelm and resentment kind of, of being left to, you know, raise three children on her own and juggle all these things. And my dad was off teaching English in other countries at times. Uh, we grew up in Taipei, Taiwan, and that's where I was born until I was five. And then they finally had their separation. But I can recall vividly um, that I think that that's what punctuated those early memories uh, is a feeling of uh, not feeling safe and like not feeling like it's like kind of like walking on eggshells, you know, like when would the, the next shoe drop? When would something go bad and fighting would erupt or whatever it might be, right? Mm. So it was, it was tension. Um, and I would, you know, I do recall like kind of escaping into my imagination play as a means to getting away. Like I had an elaborate ma imagination and I'd play with my sisters and we'd create all these games because we didn't have a lot of toys. We had like some toys, but not like my kids have. My kids have so many toys. <laughs> so many toys. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh man. Um, but yeah, definitely tension. And I used imagination as probably one of my greatest coping mechanisms, which was, <laughs> it worked out in my favor of being able to utilize my imagination and go to other planets, you know, go explore the galaxies when the parents were fighting, you know? Um, so, yeah. Did you have a curiosity as a kid? I mean, we all naturally kids have, uh, have a really deep imagination and curiosity. And you said growing up, growing up in a, an atheistic household, do you remember when your curiosity started coming online and asking maybe questions about like, what does this mean? Why am I here? What, what's the point of it all? And do you remember any specific kind of experiences with that and the challenges of, of like you said, not really being connected to the, to the sacred in some of these rituals, even if it's, you know, you know, a religious that a religion that maybe isn't in super alignment, but having some type of structure of a greater power that was kind of void in your life. How did that affect you as a, as a child? Yeah. <clears throat> well, in Taiwanese culture, they do have ancestral worship. You know, the ancestors are very important and you, you light incense on the altar and you, you 
straight to the ancestors. My mother was somewhat disconnected from that practice, but I saw my grandmother and grandfather partaking in that practice. And so that was also part of, you know, just this awareness that other people do different things. But as a boy, I didn't quite understand it. Uh, we didn't do that. You know, we didn't go to church. We didn't have any of those rituals and practices like praying before meals or anything like that that bonded us together. Um, and so I feel like that opened the door that to like, you know, anything is possible in some ways. Like this is just what, this is a playground in a sense. Um, but there also wasn't that ethical compass, you know, that those principles that you live by because, you know, for some you want to go to heaven, you know, or, or you want to be reincarnated, uh, you know, in a, in a better place. Uh, so I didn't have those things to ground me, to anchor me into a, a way of walking my path. And so there's a lot of chaos through my path as I was figuring out what this was through trial and error and through lots of pain and suffering. Um, and I did have like kind of a defiant, oppositional, rebellious um, kind of way of living, I think very early on because of the way I, I was raised. Um, but there's also a part of me that, you know, wanted to belong and wanted to be good, you know? So there's this juxtaposition, this light in the dark, right? This interplay, you could say of yin and yang, you know, or East and West, just these opposing sides. And part of me, you know, really internalized this, I think, lack of the love that I had in my household wasn't like clearly expressed and communicated. You know, it was in ways and gestures and, you know, being put to bed and there were tender moments, not to say that it was all bad. It wasn't. Um, however, my parents were really, you know, emotionally stunted. And so they couldn't communicate these deeper things. You know, they were still grappling with life and this relationship that they did not expect, I imagine. You know, they probably expected the best and then it became really their traumas, you know, being kind of recycled through the relational container. And so we didn't have much of an anchoring into any greater system of belief or uh, way of living that I think could have mitigated a lot of the pain and trauma. We didn't have community. We are largely isolated. We had extended family, but after we moved to California when I was five, it was literally me and my sisters and my mother living at my, my grandfather's house and my dad kind of coming in and out. Usually he'd come back for the summer times when he was off school off from teaching school and then he'd be teaching school in Japan. And so it became this, you know, kind of cycle, a pattern um, of him, you know, not being fully present there. And his art, my grandfather didn't have uh, religion either, you know, cause it was his wife who had passed my dad's mother who really carried that religious piece. And so it really was this like, this is it, this is life. And, you know, I did have, curiosity that was kind of inspired through books, you know, and, and my imagination was really vivid. I, I loved space growing up. Space was my thing. And if anything, if there was a greater or more, it was space and the vastness of space. And my dad was super into science. He was a geologist, a mining engineer, super into mathematics. He spoke like five languages. So in some ways he was like a savant in the realm of the intellect. He studied mm. history worldwide extensively. He traveled the world. And so he had an extensive knowledge of the world um, and even philosophy. But that's kind of where he he landed. That Like, this is what there is. That's so interesting because there's the level of the intellect and then the level of philosophy and being able to like be curious about like, what is this experience and, and contemplating. But then there's like the wall of resistance to, I mean, God, right? Yeah. 
That's a barrier between heart and mind. Because mm. the mind can only take us so far. But if we're stuck in our minds, as many people are, you know, our mind uh, can be a bridge to higher gnosis, to greater gnosis and understanding of like, what are we a part of and what, what is this? You know, what is reality? We can question it with the mind, but we can only experience the more with our heart. It's the truth, you know, our energetic heart. And so I believe that my father just had a lot of childhood trauma that prevented him from accessing those states of peace, those states of, of connectivity, the states of joy um, that taps you into the ineffable, the mystery, like what this is and what we're a part of. Um, and f same for my mother in a different way. My mother was so in her feels so in her like cycling through her trauma and like all these, you know, old stories and her childhood traumas that it, it prevented her also from like expanding into like what's possible, you know? And so I think that just that combination, it, it created like so much tension, inner tension, like these, like the battle of the opposites within me, uh, where there was a deeply sensitive and feeling part of me and also a numb I'm my own boss. I can do whatever I want kind of perspective, even going to the extent of hurting others. You know, in, in a way, like when I was young, I recall just like that actually brought me pleasure. You know, I was kind of a sadist in that sense. And of course, there's both polarities, a sadomasochist on both sides, you know? And so experiencing my darkness in that way and my destructive tendencies, which were self and other, uh, led me to so much pain and suffering that, you know, I had to pay the, pay the toll, so to say. How did those things express? Because that seems like a deep shadow aspect because you, I feel like that energy lives within all of us, obviously. Sure. To grow up in maybe, a, uh, this is really fascinating, like a Christian household like myself, th that shadow aspect I was taught like is evil. And it's, it would create a lot of shame, a lot of fear and a lot of judgment of self. Sure. And so I, I suppressed that because I needed to be a good person. And so that stuff would come out in, in unhealthy ways. And luckily I had football to channel that energy into something that was just this primal aggression, which was like, I, I think of it as like poking the potato or some steam is coming out, right? And I had that channel. A lot of young boys, young men don't have that channel and it can come out in these very unhealthy dynamics. So you had an awareness of this aspect of yourself, but you didn't really have a, a container to, to really understand it. I had some awareness, no understanding, and it was run like I was I was moving through life blind, largely. I was just in the fields and I would act and just take action, whatever that looked like. And since the the family environment was one that I really wanted to get away from as much as possible, I was out on the streets playing with my friends. And there was a, you know, kind of a pack of boys, you know, anywhere from like, I think I was the youngest one ranging up to like middle school. And what age range is this? I was five uh -huh. or six. You know, so like first grade, you know, I was like in first grade and going You just up want to, to be like, out of the house as much as possible. So you're hanging out yeah, with the boys. I think, I think the oldest one was six, in sixth grade when I was in first grade. So there's, you know, kind of a, a, a gap. There's just neighborhood kids? Yeah, neighborhood brothers. It was actually in my, my apartment complex. There was just like several boys and we just kind of band up because our parents were all at work or doing something. So we were kind of left to our own devices and so on weekends, we just do whatever we want. You know, um, or kind of some of the stuff you guys were doing. We'd run amok, kind of. You know, we get in trouble. We'd light trash cans on fire. <laughs> you know, we ding dong ditch. We'd we'd uh, you know throw rocks at windows. We shoplift. 
you know, just, just like, just, just, just wreak havoc. And I was just like kind of following along initially. Yeah, cause you were younger. Just I was like very young, following. but this is like my pathway into pornography, into like vandalism. I ended up getting uh, my first felony when I was in fifth grade for vandalism. Felony. Felony. Vandalism. Yeah. We, yeah. It just, and so this was a way that I expressed my anger. And I think that, that those destructive tendencies initially was just kind of running amok. And this anger was, you think, I mean, I'm sure you have more language and understanding now on reflection, but this obviously had to do with the dynamic that was happening at the household, or would you call it something innate within you? I think it was imbued within me, you know, probably passed cross-generationally from my father, who was very angry, who, you know, that was his primary emotion that I witnessed was his anger and him being quick to temper and him, you know, getting really upset if we were to, you know, spill something or whatever it might be, you know, if it wasn't his way. And so kind of ha- living in that authoritarian environment, I think that that's where the rebellion, like the fuck all this came from. And like, I'm going to do what I want. And uh, yeah, that's the shadow. You know, when we exert that violence or that force into the world, it's got to go somewhere. And if we do that into a child, it's got to go somewhere. And so that's where it was going. It was going on to society. You know, people that never did anything to me largely at least initially, you know, the vandalism, the shoplifting and those kinds of things. Did that felony at such a young age wake you up at all? And, or did it, you know, did, how did it affect you moving forward? You know, it, it, I think it was so early on, but I think it added to this identity as being a bad kid, you know? And so there was almost holding myself back from excelling. I had the potential to really excel, but I'd rather be the class clown. I'd, l- I'd rather make everybody laugh and get detention or whatever it might be. Uh, and so that was kind of my dynamic in school is like I had that potential, but it was never fully encouraged or supported. And so it just kind of went by the wayside, at least initially. And it wasn't until I basically, you know, after getting in trouble, like my mom's like, we got to move. And so she moved me away from all my friends that I grew up with that were, you know, in some ways bad influences. Yeah. Trying to take just, you out of the environment. Exactly. But it was, it was there in me. But I think that it was actually a great choice moving me away because it put me in a different environment. And although I acted out still like through fifth and sixth grade, um, we ultimately moved away from Fullerton in Orange County where we are living and moved into, um, moved to Orange, the city of Orange. And that gave me a fresh start through middle school and high school. And it was really in, um, before going into middle school that my mom and my father, where they had a big rupture. Um, my, my, my dad would be coming in, you know, being the Disneyland dad on the weekends, taking us out on road trips, camping and all these things, having fun. And, you know, mom was there during the school year. That was kind of the arrangement they had. And my dad would just come and sleep on the couch kind of thing. Um, but it got to the point where I feel like she had so much resentment build up and it was just like, something's got to give. And they, I remember them getting into a massive fight. They were like, just going at it. And I was yelling for them to stop. I was just like, stop, stop, stop fighting. And it continued escalating. And my mom had uh, my sister call the cops and the police came. And yeah, my dad literally bailed before the, uh, before the policeman arrived. So he just grabbed all his stuff and just literally took off. That was the last time I heard from him until I was 23 and he reached out to me on MySpace. And so it was that big gap. And I was like, I think 11 years old or so. I was about to enter seventh grade. And in some ways, this was like my initiation into um, 
into manhood in some ways because now the father's gone and crumbled the illusion that I was like holding on to for dear life that my parents would work it out and we'd be a family again. I just wanted us to be a family. And I think in the shattering of that boyhood hope, uh, you know, I became numb to that part of me, to the inner boy. It was like a death of my, my little boy at the time. And I remember even the, um, the experiences when the trauma was created and I was actually guided to go back and, and heal this and reclaim this inner boy. But in this scene, I remember running into my mother's closet as they were fighting and just like going into fetal position, closing the door and just being in fetal position and just crying as if my world was ending because that's what it felt like. It felt like everything was falling apart and falling down and this was the end of my world. And several years later, after I began my healing journey, I was guided to go back upstairs and go into my mom's room and open that closet. And a wall of pain and grief and sadness washed over me and I just erupted in, in the deepest tears and, and sorrow that consumed me. It was all consuming, but I was at it finally at a point where I could actually handle it. And it was really the reclamation of my inner boy. And from that point on, um, really kind of felt him infuse into my life more and my, my relatedness more. This was like in my mid twenties when I was guided, <clears throat> guided uh, to reclaim my, my little boy. But all that to say, it was uh, in some ways life initiated me into manhood because now I'm the man of the house, quote unquote, even though no boy um, can hold that responsibility without really caving to the pressure of it. And the way that I did that was really just escaping through my peers and just having, just being with my friends all the time. It was just too much to face the reality that like I'm the man of the house, quote unquote. And there's a void that was felt that I just, knew on some level that I could not fill. I can't fill this void that my father left, um, but there was almost an expectation, subconscious expectation that I must and that I should. And I, I, I ran from that for a long time. I ran from that the best I could, but I did feel the responsibility to still be like the man of the house. And, and you know, I have two sisters, one older, one younger. And there is a, uh, yeah, I felt that. I felt that mantle of responsibility on my shoulders and it was too too much to bear. But that was really in some in many ways my initiation into manhood and adulthood. It felt like that even though I was only 11 and, and ill-equipped to face that. But it was just a reality that my dad's gone. My mom's fending on it by herself, for herself and for us. And so I really kind of saw my dad, started seeing my dad, especially the way my mom would talk about my dad as like the villain. Right? He was selfish. He doesn't care about us. And it wasn't until much later that I got more of the picture and more of the story and could understand both sides with compassion and understanding. Ah. Thanks for sharing that, bro. Holy cow. I'm interested in, in you know, it's really powerful to, to, to feel the weight at such a young age of all these expectations, all of this energy, all this responsibility. And not being able to hold it and, you know, escaping from it in, in different ways and not really confronting it. And, you know, we're doing the best you can at such a young age. You just, in a society and culture that we live in, we don't have the, the, the space 
the tools. We're not taught how to process that. It's not talked about really. It's kind of this unspoken expectation instead of creating a space of like, I need to work through some of the stuff that I'm feeling and not even having the ability to have an awareness of what you're feeling at the time mm-hmm. and all of that getting stored within you. And I'm interested, I'd love for you to talk about that calling back to this closet because it's really beautiful that you not only had the, the moment of being called back into that that part of yourself that is such a powerful imprint, but actually going back to the place that you felt the imprint of that, that experience and then feeling the flood of emotions in the process. And the power of healing really only happens through the feeling and the heart and the emotions. And in that process, you're able to release all the energy that you are holding. So talk about that calling. What called you back to that moment? What Let's get into that that more of a waking and healing process and, and where that kind of first began and, and the journey that it took you on. Yeah, thank you. <sighs> yeah, so really what it was, was, uh, you know, living a double life for many years. That's what kind of took place. It was like the good and the bad and the light and the dark within me split. And I began kind of living a double life. You know, on one side, I was like, you know, really amiable and uh, bright and, you know, looking for like happy to connect. I was kind of a nerd, you know, and in high school, this manifested as like, you know, just wanting to do well. And so I was in like AP classes. I was a yearbook editor. You know, I was uh, the commissioner of spirit uh, in ASB. I was doing, I was looking to achieve. And uh, that's where I also started working in IT. I, I got an opportunity to work at my school district as one of the junior IT technicians, which is really what gave me the leg up and put me on that path. I mean, so what was the, was there a shift going from this kind of younger kind of troublemaking kid to like, I want to find success in school? Was it this moment of being responsible and being the head of the household type thing? I would say that, yeah, through the process of middle school and just being in a whole new environment with whole new friends and everything, I was able to kind of shed the troublemaker identity that I had been living up to that point. And so was just around different people and wanting to fit in and wanting to belong. And I think that belonging led me to like, okay, yeah, you, my friends are going to go and be in honor classes. I want to be in honor classes kind of thing, you know? A lot of power from your mom. Shout out to her. It's yeah. shifting your environment of the, it is, you are the, the sum total of the people you hang around with, especially really as a are. kid. We really are. We're so influenced. And so it's beautiful that that influence had an impact on you. Yeah. So it worked out well in the sense that I landed with a, a good group of friends and they're just good people around. And it allowed me to kind of cultivate some of this, you know, after I started working through kind of my like class clown stuff, which did manifest a little bit in the beginning of middle school. But as I continued growing uh, and, and um, excelling to some extent, I wasn't like the top of the class, but I was still doing well, well enough that there was self-esteem that was derived from that experience. You know, and grew and, but then this double life, this pain inside and this like draw to the dark side of life in a sense was inside me because of the trauma. And so there's this like kind of split where, you know, there's a curiosity about drugs and like a, a resonance with the other kids who were the cool kids or the kids that had, usually the cool kids are the ones that have trauma. <laughs> You know, you know, <laughs> that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> Often, not always, but they're, they're, you know, charismatic. They've learned to adapt. They, they lead pretty early on and um, they get that mystique, you know, the cool factor. Um, and I think that does, that does always, uh, not always, but often it can come from trauma and being in some kind of chaotic environment. Anyhow, uh, you know, got into 
cannabis uh, and also started and found Airwid actually really early on in high school. What is Airwid? Airwid's a, a massive psychoactive uh, database of all, all the different psychoactive substances. Uh, and it's like a website on, yeah, an online okay. internet database that's been around since the 90s, from what I understand. And it's, it's, you know, they have trip reports and like all the facts about the different substances. Anyway, I was like, I would just, oh man, I want to try this. And I'd read these, you know, this was like probably the beginning seeds that were sown. I'm um, just of curiosity and that there's these um, substances that can like change my state and give me these experiences. So I was aware of that pretty early on. Um, and if I found myself uh, smoking weed, you know, and getting into that. And uh, so amidst that, that was kind of my gateway. And then I, I you know, done some mushrooms um, in high school and some uh, DXM, you know, which is like from cough syrup. My friends, would, friends and I would extract it. <laughs> How do you extract DXM from cough syrup? I've never heard of this. Oh, it's a, it's a process. Uh, but yeah, using different uh, chemicals, ammonia. I was also in chemistry. And so we'd, like, <laughs> so we'd, take, we'd take the... Um, Doing high school drug uh, chemist <laughs> stuff. I love it. We did crazy things, yeah. What was, DX, so what was the experience of DXM? Why, well, it's a dissociative. So oh, it's okay. kind of uh, somewhere in between uh, ketamine and uh, PCP, fencyclidine. Uh, so yeah, DXM was kind of in the middle as a dissociative and it kind of, you know, puts you into a whole nother world and it was like fun. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of people drinking cough syrup, you know, or taking yeah, those, like the scissor yep, and the like purple drink and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. It was big in, when I was playing sports. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it, it lets you kind of get a little loose and get a little wild and kind of forget. You know, it's disconnecting us from, uh, I think our, our pain. It's, mm. it's, uh, it's like anesthesia in a way, mm -hmm. um, but we're feeling a lot more. We are feeling pleasure on those experiences, but it was all those. And eventually, you know, led my way down into a harder and harder drugs and into living that double life where, uh, you know, kind of like the success was now meeting or the successful identity that me that wanted to strive to achieve was now meeting the reality of my trauma coupled with addiction. Mm. What were some of the drugs that you got into that when it started getting bad? Ecstasy, cocaine, methamphetamine. Uh, I dabbled in opiates, but it was never really. It was more the the stimulants. Sure, and this was an all in high school. It started in high school, and oh. uh, and it you know progressed until I got arrested, and even after I got arrested after high school, so my second felony. Uh, but yeah, it was really that uh, path into my pain and trauma um, that addiction brought me into that forced me to reckon with what was at my core and like this inner conflict, the part of me that felt worthless and, and hated myself and the part of me that had experienced good people and like seen families that were like whole and just like seen enough life to say, my story isn't the only story, but I was still living in it. I was still bound by the emotions that were, that I didn't, wasn't able to navigate. And also in my own family, my sisters were struggling emotionally. My older sister had like a, a bipolar in high school. She had a breakdown and she had to be on psychotropic medications. And she was like, just kind of in that place too. And then my younger sister, she was raped in middle school. And that was the onset of mental illness for her. And she was on psychotropic medication and seeing psychiatrists. And it was just like this, like you could see, uh, if we were to zoom out of our our family, like we are all like gifted and talented, but we are also each had like so much trauma and baggage 
and, and didn't have, I, I think, adequate support to face it. And so, you know, I think we each found our own way. My sister like was a high scholastic achiever, got a full ride to Chapman University, was like, you know, top of the class often. Uh, and I, you know, we all excelled academically. But I think that the weight of our trauma like kept us from really rising to the greatest heights and it had to be reckoned with. And for my younger sister, you know, she ended up, actually she took her life. Uh, yesterday it would be 14 years, 14 years since my younger sister Shonda took her life. And so that just kind of gives you an idea of the trauma we are reckoning with, the cross-generational trauma we are reckoning with. How old were you when that, when that happened? I was 24 turning five. She, she ended her life five days before my 25th birthday. And so... What kind of effect did that have on you and the, and the family? It was devastating. Um, I had just been one year sober, clean, actually. Uh, I had, you know, prior to the death, I had my, I was facing death myself. I had made up my mind to end my life and I was, I, I was convicted to do it. I had a plan. I was ready to go and... Before I was about to do it, something within me cried out, cried out to God. And so this was a prayer and a God that I did not believe in, asking, praying, if you're real, I need to know. And God came. God came to me as a vibration, as an energy of love, of unconditional divine love that I had never experienced up to that point. I felt it just break my, my heart open, my energetic heart. And that's why like, I have an awareness of my spiritual heart is that like opening and then flooding in of the peace, the bliss of being held and protected and loved by this universal father, mother, God, this spirit, whatever. You know, we use these words, but we, we can only point to what is. And that's really what is. I experienced the depth of God's love and it was in that that dissolved all this pain that I'd been running for my whole life and gave me reason to keep going. What was going through your mind in those, in those moments leading up to the point of actually planning out and really like how close were you to actually going through with taking your own life and how much did that full surrender moment of there's nothing left to live for calling out and then having a mystical experience? Take us a little bit through that sure. experience. Yeah, 100% uh, was, was clear that I was going to end my life. And it was because I was living this double life still that carried on after I had already been arrested. Uh, basically, my mother reached out to me. I had a good job in IT. I was working for a Fortune 500 company. I was like, you know, really set on climbing the ladder and, and achieving success that way. But I was still dealing with addiction. It was closeted at that point. And so I was just hiding it. But I was still living that double life, you know, um, wrong kind of connections and, and using on the weekends and partying and running and escaping. And then nine to five, you know, playing the game. And my mother reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, your, your sister really needs our help. And I, I think of, uh, changing the environment is important, but we can't afford to move. And so are you willing to come back home or can we move and find a place that's a better environment for her, but we need your financial support and your help. And so I agreed. Um, I was, you know, in, in going through addiction and I was, you know, in working corporate and uh, I was like, maybe that would be good for all of us. 
I didn't tell her that. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll help out. I had the chance to now be the hero and kind of come in and save everybody. Because from your family's perspective, you got your head on right. You're not dealing with the same things that your sister's dealing with, but underneath it all, you're I was, in the same spot. I was very much in a similar place. Mm. And so as, I, as, as we did that, like I, I promised myself that I was going to quit and that I was going to turn my life and straighten out. And I just couldn't. I couldn't break the addiction. And uh, I... It, accumulated more and more self-hatred and just like this shame that was just such a weight into like starting this, you know, just have suicidal ideation, just thinking about like, what if I just killed myself? What would happen? You know, and thinking about it and thinking about it came into plan, came to planning about it, you know? And like, it would just, every time I would relapse, it would just deepen that self-hatred and that self-loathing. And it got to that point where I said, I'm actually a burden for my family and making things worse. And I'm, I don't deserve to live. That was really what I came to. And it, that part of me, that self-destructive, other destructive part of me was just like kind of at the end of the road. It couldn't go on anymore. And I couldn't see a way to live on. And there was no God in my worldview. There was nothing greater. It was just like I, I had experienced the heights of pleasure, or at least at that point, as I thought I would, you know, and you know, chased the life that I wanted to live, rode a motorcycle, was successful, got girls, dealt drugs. And I thought I had it all, but I was really just losing, losing out on life. And I think it just all came to head one night as I was about to go score. And I just felt so much disgust and hatred. And I was like, this is it. This is the time. Let's, let's spare ourselves this cycle. Let's, let's end it now. And I got very clear and you know, I was going to slip my wrists. That was, that was the plan. And, you know, maybe there's a part of it that want, like, that wanted to go out in a really morbid way as well. Kind of like a fuck you, you know, like this is what, what happened. This is what life, this is what life is, you know, at least from my perspective at that point, like the good that I had experienced failed. It didn't ultimately make the difference that it needed to. And so just, you know, sitting alone, and in my room and it, that conviction uh, turned into sadness like that I'm going to be leaving. And it's like, like different girlfriends and people that I've been close to my friends and my seeing my family, imagining them finding my body and then them like just tripping out and screaming and, and, and breaking down and pout it. And then, yeah, it was just like kind of in the, in all the emotions of that, of, of what's going to happen when I leave. And then it was at that point that something deep within me called out, God, if you're real, I need you. I need you. I need you now, if you're real. And God came. God came as a vibration and opened my heart. Opened my heart. This vibration that felt like it was shaking my whole room suddenly came into me and it was shaking the foundations of my existence. And I felt my heart expand and just like this ocean of peace wash in. It's like being held by a parent, an all loving parent. And I never experienced that feeling, even in the depths of, you know, my drug use and the depths of sex that I had up at that point, there was nothing that could compare to this feeling of just dissolving in pure love. I like I, everything's perfect. And I was communicating and like tele telepathically. I was like, don't leave me. Don't leave me. And God, God communicated to me, I've always been here and I'll always be here. 
I've always been here and I'll always be here. I just cried and I cried because I felt so worthless and undeserving. And it was in that restoration, that redemption. It was like, no, you have a purpose for your life. I have a purpose for you. There's a reason to be here through all of this. And it just like something flipped. And it was just this 180 in that moment. It's like life is on. Like I felt invincible. I knew I was going to crush the addictions and I was going to turn everything around. I didn't know what it would look like. God stayed with me for a good 20, 30 minutes and just held me. I just said, don't leave me, don't leave me. And when God, the vibration left, I just felt peace. I just felt whole. I felt there was no need. And from that point on, uh, I just began a rigorous practice of meditation, of prayer, of spending time in nature. I stopped watching porn, TV, movies. I stopped partying. I stopped using. I stopped everything. All in that moment. All in that moment. Wow. And it became really just like this monk ascetic existence where I went to work. I came home and, you know, I spent time praying every morning, um, every evening, you know, I'd spend time cleaning the house and helping my family in whatever ways. I just like looked for ways to be of service and to help out. Um, you know, I didn't know at the time that I was spiritually bypassing all my trauma, which is really what I was doing, but it was what I needed to find stability and foundation in this new reality where God is real and God is at the center. And so I did my best to, you know, build a container in my life to make my body a temple so that I'm, I'm in worship, I'm in prayer, and I'm really paying back in, in a sense and, and, and paying homage to God in a way that I knew how. And I started studying the different world religions and really started getting curious about like what has already been written about this God. And why is there so much conflict around it? And what, what is all this that I hear? And now I'm going to actually dive into it, understand it. And so it led me to praying in different houses of worship, um, different temples and synagogues and mosques, and uh, meeting the people that were devout in their faith to this God. And it was beautiful to kind of piece things together from this place of really now knowing through my own gnosis that God is real and that God is all loving God is merciful. And then everything that's been said about God, at least, I don't want to say everything, but all the good things that have been said about God, I've experienced to some extent and now felt and embodied it. I was like, now I got to unravel this. And yeah, those two years were pivotal in laying the foundation for me to continue my path in a good way. But a year into that, you know, God showed me actually a vision pretty early on of my sister jumping off a building. And in that vision, I also jumped off the building after her, trying to catch her, trying to help her. And not only did she die, I died. When I died, it wasn't just the end. Suddenly I was transported to this like purgatory, this in-between. And I was like, oh no, I'm stuck here. And it was this awful, horrific realization of like, oh no, I'm stuck here without a body. And this, I'm just here now. And it was this awful feeling of like, oh no, I'm just stuck here. And then I carried that back into realizing like, I didn't realize actually what that really meant. But I was like, basically, if I die, that's what I inferred is that if I die, 
then it can life continues on. And that's what it feels like to have my some some of my senses, but not my physical body. I'm just now an energy, no longer bound to a body, but I didn't have one. So it was this like, oh no, like I'm just this like phantom. <laughs> so it was weird. But lo and behold, after about a year, um, I was I was my mission after being saved by God was to save my sister. And in, it's, in many ways it was misguided, but I was, my intentions were true and pure is that I wanted to save my little sister. You know, she was hearing voices and I was like, oh, I did a new context. I was like, oh, she has demons. Demons, she's, she's like, there, there are other entities that are in her consciousness now that are speaking to her and telling her to kill herself. And like, I get it now. I have a cause, I have an understanding. It's not just she's crazy, quote unquote. It's like, there's a spiritual root to this. And so I set off to like, really, I dragged her into like praying with me and meditating with me. And I'd like listen to chants, chants when we're driving. And like, I really tried to pour into her, but she was, she was deep in her, her disorder. She was deep in her mental illness. She was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which is like this blend of schizophrenia and, and bipolar disorder, which is like mood. Um, and also she hearing voices and it was really intense for her. How was it for you? Was she was she receptive to some of these outreaches for help? And well, that's why I continued them. Um, was that whenever we would pray or meditate together, I would see her crying and like feeling and like little like signs that like kind of affirmed that like, oh, this is helping you. This is good. There's hope there. Yeah, you know. But at the same time, she was really you know she was on a lot of psychotropic medications. She was kind of obsessed with writing this book, writing this book. And I think she, once she completed that book, that was like kind of her plan. And then like looking back at it and she did end up jumping off of a building and ending her life in that way. And I remember right before she did it though, the day of um, she did it, I was guided to speak all my love to her and to share like even more so than normal. As I was dropping her off, I was just saying, Shonda, I love you so much. We love you so much. And we're not going to give up. We're not going to give up on you. We're going to be here no matter what. And like just really reassuring her and really being strong. And then I remember even crying at that, in that conversation for whatever reason, I was crying, just like letting her know. And she was just kind of like, as I was dropping her off, and we're just looking at me and saying, it's, it's going to be all right, Alpi. It's going to be all right. And that night I got the call. She had ended her life. I got it from my mom. And I was like, oh. just didn't feel real. I was just in shock. I was in disbelief. But in reckoning with that and accepting that and seeing her body and seeing my mom fall apart, it was this, it was this like challenge to apply what I, my, the faith that I've been practicing up to that point that I had found myself in now to know that life goes on. And I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the inner resources, like the inner capacity to face it. And I didn't really have the outer support network either. Um, and so I wasn't able to really fully process the grief. Initially, it was just like, okay, got to power through this. My, my mom and my sister need me. They both lost their jobs. They were falling apart. You know, I was working full-time. I was going to school full-time. Um, I had like, I was really ambitious. I was like, I got to like straighten out my life. And like, I have to make up for lost time. And uh, it really kind of came under my shoulders to just kind of hold everything. But that was really, my little sister's suicide was really what initiated my path into healing because um, although 
having a cosmological framework and orientation to life through this like universal spirituality and having, you know, these different meditations and prayers and chants that really grounded me and doing breath work and, and having time in nature. And like, I was able to resource myself that way, but often, uh, you know, ultimately I was being called to face all the trauma that I had inherited and that I was, that was carrying in my fascia, my body, my nervous system. I was still carrying it. And so it started with family therapy and grief work and support groups, you know, like, like just knowing my mom and my sister, we needed to talk to people. We couldn't just like implode and like be stuck in this, this place where there was so much sadness and so much grief and shame. And it was like, it was really the, like the, an identity death for my mother, I think, because she really wanted to save my little sister. That was part of her identity. I think there was like, a, you know, kind of an unhealthy tie that way of her in some ways unconsciously wanting her to be ill so that she could care for her perhaps in a way or save her in a way it was her attempt to save herself that she wasn't able to, to meet her little self, her younger self. So uh, really it was those first beginning um, openings to other people to sharing the story of her suicide and seeing and experiencing what it felt like to actually talk about the pain that really began that process of feeling and then healing that pain and looking for, you know, deeper therapy and, and, and other forms of healing. Uh, and then eventually even stepping into study healing as, and being called onto that path of working with people. Uh, I was called onto the path of uh, being a psychotherapist. And I just remember taking that, I was being, I was in the hallway of my school and my university and I was in the, I was going to be a journalist. I was going to write because I loved writing as well. But I was just standing in the communications building. I'm like, this does not feel right. This is I. I this doesn't make sense. What, what about it didn't make sense? Do you recall? I just felt like I wasn't in the right place. I was like, mm. this does not feel like where I'm meant to be. I felt so disconnected from it. And I just like the whole kind of energy of academia. Well, it was, it was, no, it was just in, in literally in the communications building. And that's what led me to changing my major. Mm. And so I took a class on the theories and techniques of marriage, family therapy. Mm. And that, that class, Amy Manfrini, shout out Amy Manfrini, Dr. um, Blasted me wide open. She was a, a marriage family therapist and also a professor and just studying these different concepts like psycho, um, you know, psychoanalytic therapy, psychodynamic, cognitive behavioral, you know, going through all these different modalities of therapy and talking about them and being with a therapist. It was the first container for me to like really start diving deeper into my roots and like my trauma. Because up to that point, I had not really faced my own personal stuff. It was just more what would happened. So with this experience, because a lot of times you go into school, it's it's people are learning this stuff up here in the intellect, like we spoke to earlier. But because you had such just this energy bubbling up inside you, you had this internal journey to apply these things you're learning into the actual process. How much did that class or these classes in this journey help hold for the experiential process just as much as learning about? 100%. It was crucial actually because... As I experienced that class, I changed my major to human services and got in, got in with people who are on the path of applied psychology. You know, psychology is kind of research-based. You're, you know, you're studying the labs, et cetera. Human services is like social work, marriage, family therapy, and applied 
psychology. And so I stepped into that realm where a lot of the professors were like living in the field of their work or had for many years. And so really was blessed to step into a program called Character and Conflict. Shout out uh, Stuart Bloom, one of my mentors, uh, Christy Canal. These are all like, these are figures which completely changed the trajectory of my life, uh, larger than life to me at the time. Uh, and my, my mentor, Stuart Bloom, uh, being able to be brought into, he was my group leader. And I say group leader, this was a container where students who were on the path of becoming mental health professionals had an opportunity to experience a group psychotherapeutic dynamic, literally like group therapy containers, which were supervised by psychologists. And so we had a chance to do graduate level work in undergrad. So because they saw like, hey, a lot of people seek healing. By becoming therapists, they're also seeking their own healing, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people that go into therapy, they want to seek understanding. And on some level, whether consciously or unconsciously, they're seeking out healing for their own childhood wounds. And so they saw that and they're like, hey, we should give people an experience to be able to do their work before they get there so that they're more able to focus on what they need to without crumbling under the pressure and the stress and the things that happen inevitably in any rigorous academic. So in that program, I had the opportunity to lead these 16-week long existential themed process groups where we honor, you know, Irvin Yalom's work in the group psychotherapeutic dynamic and uh, the different stages of a group of building cohesion, of, of, of facing conflict within and without, and of being able to get to a place of cohesion and running through this cycle for 16 weeks with different groups. I had co-leaders. And so it was a very dynamic environment. First, I was a participant and uh, usually people lead for, you know, you become a group leader for maximum of two semesters. Like that's one year. I had the blessing to do it for two full years. And on the last one, my group, my co-leader dropped out. They, they weren't able to lead with me and it was just me. And in that group of leading these eight college students who were, who were on their way to be you know, social workers, psychologists, marriage, family therapists, it was, ma- it was a, as if experienced the magic of healing and of what can flow through me when uninhibited. And of course, we're going with structures. We're supervised. You know, all of all of their journals are being reviewed weekly. It's it's a dynamic process of learning and participating. Uh, but in that, I saw really the magic of group work, and it gave me the foundation of how much transformation can happen when we hold space for the inner child. You know, and I had had that experience that God guided me into. Of it was an active meditation where I was literally shown a passageway, a dark passageway that I walked through. And then as I walked through it, I realized I'm stepping into my childhood home. And in stepping through my childhood home, I was like drawn upstairs. I was drawn, like pulled if by gravity as I was now, the man that I was, I think I was probably 24, drawn into um, the house the day of their massive fight. I just felt the charged energy. I felt that energy um, walking in. I didn't see my mom and dad, but I felt the energy of their presence that they were there, they were fighting. And I went up into my mom's room and I was guided to open up the closet. And as I opened up the closet, this wave 
of pain and sorrow and grief and, and heartache. My heart just broke and instantly I, I just began sobbing the, the deepest tears I had ever sobbed in my life. I just felt all that little boy was not able to feel. You know, this boy that was on the precipice of becoming a man, you know, you know tribal initiations and in indigenous cultures often begin around that age. And I just remember feeling all his grief and it was just flooding through me and I was just crying and crying and holding him in my arms. He was in, in fetal position and I remember picking him up and just holding him and, and just crying with him and then carrying him downstairs and out the house. And as I was, as we walked outside, and I put him down on the ground on the earth. It was like something shifted. You know, I'd cried all those tears that were trapped in me, that were trapped in my somatic body that I did not have the ability to integrate. You know, it was a traumatic experience and it left a big traumatic imprint. And it was in that reclamation that I started feeling my inner boy. And ultimately that led me to being able to work with the inner child of others. And so in this group environment, you know, all the inner child stuff came to life. And it was the deepest group of childhood is definitely one of the themes in this process, but it came to life in such a way there was safety in that container and everybody had a process. Usually you have a few people that have really big processes and everybody participates, but there's, you know, from a year and a half doing this, I, I saw like there's some people that go there and some people that don't. But in this group, we all went there and our bond was so strong at, by the end of it. I was like, this is what I'm here on earth to do. I'm here to lead groups specifically. I love the group dynamic. I was like, yes, I want to do one-on-one too, but groups is where it's at. That's what lit me up. And we had, we are, our group was a part of maybe eight, eight other groups that were part of a greater cohort, community, if you will. And so that was like my first experience of community where we are all doing this healing work. We are all college students. We all had a future you know, and we're helping each other in this process. And we have these mentors, these elders, these wise elders that hold, held this space for us to be human, to grieve, to rage, to go through the deepest of deep, you know, molestation, childhood traumas of all types, you know, to like find a sense of safety within. And so I really honor all of them for, for their impact on me. And, and I believe the program continues to this day. My mentors are retired. Um, and I did group therapy with one of them. Um, yeah. And so that was a, such a pivotal time in my healing process was seeking it out um, of like, I'm going to become this therapist. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And it was a blessing to have that container um, where there were these wise elders you know, who are psychotherapists who had lived a lot of life themselves. You know, my mentor, Stuart Bloom's like 86, this old Jewish man who held space for me to face my father wound. I remember after I um, already graduated, my father sent me a letter or no, I sent my father a letter. Right? My father had reached out on MySpace, you know, and so I sent my father, I was like really dealing with it. I was really going through it, you know, after graduating college, and still having to hold so much space for my mother and my sister. And it was like such a heavy burden. And I was like, now that I'm out of college and I, you know, I, I was working full-time in IT still, I just graduated now and I wanted to 
potentially going to grad school. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to work full time and go into grad school and take care of my, my family. There's no way. And I had so much anger being able to trace it back to like my dad bailing out really. So I, I was blaming him at that time. Just like you bailed out of your responsibility as a father, you'd cut off child support. Like you literally just dipped. I had so much anger. And I remember writing him this email where I just felt the, the, the anger, the rage, the injustice of it, the grief of it, that I had been holding my family my whole fucking life. And it was just like, I wrote him this email and what he sent back was just like unacceptable. He wasn't able to take responsibility. He didn't say sorry. He was just deflecting, deflecting, deflecting. And I remember reading, I was like, I, I asked my mentor, Stuart, if he could hold space for me. Like if he could like, I, I, I needed to move through this anger. So he said, yeah. Like, and I went over to his house and I had my letter and I just read it like so much anger in my voice and tears streaming down my face. And he just held that space of love and compassion, just seeing me in my like wound over my father and like what I inherited from him and all the pain I had to move through because he wasn't able to be the father that we needed him to be. And in being able to express all that pain and all that anger and resentment and, and, and grieve and just cry and being held by my mentor who had been guiding me two years on this path of, you know, really facilitation and, and being able to hold the therapeutic frame and having principles that we abide by, you know, to understand the deeper roots of what this, this process and how it's unfolding. Something shifted something massive shifted and like in, in that place of that anger and that rage towards my father was just acceptance, understanding and, and at a certain point, compassion. And eventually, more recently, forgiveness. And just going through that whole arc of, of healing with my father and have, having mentorship, which really helped me reclaim the father archetype. That's what, what I really felt like I reclaimed from my mentor because the father archetype I received my, from my father was broken. It was the shadow. It was the tyrant king, right? It was, it was the absent father. But from my mentor, it was just unconditional love. It was, it was just support, cheering me on, seeing me, reflecting to me, just really being able to attune to me and meet me where I needed to be met. And so receiving that and internalizing that after expressing that, all that anger and rage and pain I had with my father, it, I just, something shifted intrinsically within me. And I got clarity about my path forward that I didn't actually want to go into grad school. And my mentors from all sides reflected that you know, they supported me either way. I, I get to choose my path. And it, so it was a beautiful opening. I was also gifted a shamanic a, a workshop on shamanism, core shamanism. And so dived into the world of shamanic drumming and entering into non-ordinary reality and journeying through shamanic drumming. And then that kind of splintered off into psychedelic exploration, uh, plant medicines. And, you know, through all of it was weaving the Eastern philosophical foundation of Buddhism and Zen, you know, meditation and uh, really this like Taoist non-doing approach and also the Western psycho, 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 psychological frameworks, you know, from the West. And then also, you know, started leaking in or creeping in or growing in uh, was the indigenous traditions, the wisdom tradition, 
traditions of indigenous people from around around the world. It started to kind of inform my worldview and how my approach to what healing really is. And having a clear ontological orientation to reality that God is at the core of all of it, that the source of all life is at the core. And my passage through all these different stages of psycho, psychological development and spiritual, spiritual unfolding, you know, it kind of crystallized in this like, yes, I'm here to support people in coming back into wholeness. And I've experienced a big part of that process pretty early on and what it takes. And it takes everything. You know, it takes the faith. It takes the foundation that there's a greater power. I don't believe we can achieve full healing and full wholeness without having the correct orientation to life. And that is God is at the center of all of it. And so whether you want to use the word God, source, universe, love, it's a supremely intelligent, supremely loving and omnipotent, intelligent, creative force that is like the ocean. It's like the air we breathe. It's, it's in everything and, and it's everywhere. And so orienting to that and having that, but also recognizing that we have a responsibility to do God's work. And what that, like, what that looks like is different for everybody. But for me specifically of having to walk this path through all this trauma and learning to heal and clear and transmute it over time. And by no means am I fully healed or all healed. I make no claim. You know, I believe this journey goes on for a lifetime. And I've seen healing happen through me and through another person who was receptive and open. You know, and there's times it varies, it varies. And I believe that when it, when it clicks and aligns, when someone's fully ready to receive healing and there's someone that can hold that space for them, everybody's different and everybody receives differently as well. But I've seen it enough through me and through others and my mentors and teachers that I know healing is possible. I know miracles are real. So whatever disease or illness, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, I believe we can return to our pristine origins and, and live our birthright as a son or daughter of the most high God. If we so choose to humble ourselves to recognizing that there is a power much greater than us and we are here to serve it. And we are here to let its energy flow through us. And when we can get out of our own way and also maximize the gifts and talents that were born into us, that I believe was cultivated through lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. Then life is on and God can do its works through us. You know, and God is really this like Tao, right? The yin and the yang, this beautiful, perfect balance of masculine and feminine. And that really calls each of us as men and women to embody that balance to the fullest. You know, and so I love the fact that, you know, you're bringing on elite athletes onto this show and just people who have experience the depth and breadth of life to know that we are not our identity. That our true identity is a soul, is an energy being who is born of the mystery. That we have an opportunity here to live the greatest love story imaginable. And that's what I'm here for. And that's what I'm living with you in this moment and being able to share. And so it's also beautiful once we're able to move through all the ugliness that is so rife in our world. Because I truly believe that by and large, our collective is pretty young. You know, my brother, Young Pueblo, he writes about his name, Young Pueblo, Diego Sanchez, um, is young people. And I love that because like we are a young 
population on earth. We still have wars. We still have exploitation. We still have, you know, all these quote unquote evils of darkness moving through us and that pain continuing to spread in, in, in big ways. And so I think it's on us who have experienced the depth of life and what's possible to bring that forward. And that's why, you know, having the opportunity to be on podcasts like yours, it's such a blessing. And, and for you to be able to transmit these stories, right? You're, that's really your modern storyteller here, weaving these incredible stories from people who have lived a lot of life, who people might look up to, right? Especially in the world of sports and celebrity. So I, I believe this is a beautiful opportunity for a, a fundamental reorientation that's being called for this paradigm shift, right? We know it's happening and we need all hands on deck. You know, we're young people. And so that calls each of us uh, to really embody our gifts and our strengths and our skills and to share them with others, to really embody and share like our best skills. And yes, it's good to improve and work on other things, but I, like, I, I feel like mastery is key is, is going as deep as we can into what we're here to do and be, mm. you know? And for me, that's to, to be a space holder, a transformer of energy, a leader, someone who can really embody with integrity, living from the heart. We can really call people into this new way of being that there's a lot of resistance to, you know, you mentioned feelings even to the mainstream world and people are, some people are tuning out right there and then, oh, we're talking about feelings. I'm out. And that's the old way because we're so defended against feeling because it's in feeling that change and transformation can happen, right? You said, if you don't feel it, you can't heal it. It's through feeling that we truly heal and come into wholeness because energy is supposed to move through us. We're not stagnant. We're not here to be stagnant. And when we're stagnant, that's when physical diseases manifest. And those physical diseases are merely indicators that we're out of alignment at some fundamental level and that we need to get to the root, the spiritual root that we are off course. And that's why we hear so many people that go through um, some kind of life-threatening illness or life-threatening experience that wakes them up, just like mine. You know, it just ha so happened that I was the initiator of that. That's why even in rites of passage, you know, indigenous rites of passage often, you know, I think it was Maladoma Somme who spoke this, and I, I heard this from Kyle Kingsbury actually, that unless an initiation rite had the potential of death, it wasn't a legit initiation right. You know, and in many of them, there's, there's extreme pain at the minimum. And in and, and, and some of them, death is a likelihood, potentiality. Why is it so important to actually get to a place where you're confronting your death in such a visceral way? What, what does that process actually elicit within the individual that's so profound and powerful? Well, for me, I, I believe that it's the symbolic death that happens. It's really that brush with literal death that ignites the symbolic death that takes, you know, so to, to the grave, so to say, I mean, in, in indigenous cultures, the boy, the boy is left at the mother's hearth. And when you come back from your initiation rites, you're now a young man. And now with the responsibilities of being a man, you can no longer be the boy you once were and do the things you did before. You are pulled from that world into the world of men. And so you start your mentorship process and like playing supportive roles for the men in the village, right? But going into this world that we're living in now, it's really symbolic death that nourishes the soul and the truth of who we are, right? It's only through the death of our identity. Sometimes we can get so in, wrapped up in our identities. I, I have definitely been wrapped up in my identities in the past to think that that was me. 
And when we think something that isn't us is us, that calls forward a death. Things align so that we will die because we're not living in the truth of who we are. And now we're going off course, right? Because when we're living as an identity, things become stagnant and we start making choices that are not fully aligned with the soul. And so in that misalignment, what calls forward from that, from life, the reflections that are going to come are some kind of suffering, some kind of suffering to shake us out of the identity to say, this is not it. And I know, you know, your story comes to mind. You know, when I'm speaking to that, my story comes to mind and so many of our friends and peers in the space, it's like when we're called to die, which is a very painful process and it does really feel like death at times. Like it feels like we're dying literally. And in that feeling death that happens, it's a cleansing away of what was no longer serving us that we didn't even know that we are so enmeshed with and so wrapped up in that we couldn't see that I couldn't see. And so I give thanks for, for the death, you know, as a society, as a whole, we got to do much better on how we meet death and how we educate about death and how we face and embrace death. Cause it really, it's our, in our denial of it and pushing it away that leads to so much pain and regret and wishing we could have done things differently. And the truth is we could have, but maybe we just didn't have the understanding, the framework, and really those seeds that need to be sowed at the very beginning of life, that death is a part of life. Death is a part of life. And if one has the blessing to be able to be connected to a lineage, a wisdom tradition, a faith that connects, connects them to the eternal of life, the infinity of life, this like the, the great mystery, so to say, then we know there's no fear. There's no fearing death. It's just another transition. It's just something to move through. We can argue and, you know, about what really happens after. I've had an experience outside of my body multiple times, twice, that showed me what it was in, in each of those times. And so I feel like any of us who have experienced the other side, so to say, in any way, or this identity death, it's almost like our imperative to bring that forward for our fellow men and women, for, for, for mankind to say, hey, I went, I went out, I went out. It's, it's good. We're all good. Yeah, it goes from, from a, a belief, because that's what most religions are built on, is the, there's one of the main fears you could argue of all humans is the fear of death, which is the fear of the great unknown, which can show up in the unknown experiences that we go into when we let go. That's why we hang on so tightly to an identity. It's like, I know this makes me feel safe. And if I let go of it, what's on the other side? It's unknown, which is the, the, the same as, as the great unknown, which is death. And so going from a belief around, which is what a lot of religions are built on, is like the, this fear of death. Am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to go to hell? What is after? And it is, it's an unknown experience that kind of plagues us all at some level, but to have an experience of it, it goes from a belief into a knowing. And when you have a knowing, it dissolves belief. You no longer need to believe and nobody can tell you any different because you've gone through experience of, I know that I might not be able to predict exactly what happens, but I know that there is something that happens after I die and I am so much more than this, this physical body. That's it. That's it right there. You know, having the direct experience that like faith is rooted in, that nothing and no one can shake. And so after experiencing 
God directly and having that mystical experience and having many experiences after that just expanded my understanding of what is. Now that, you know, I'm, I'm a father of three now. Zion was just born last month and being so close to be able to receive my sons in my hands, you know, Devon delivering them into my hands and us receiving this new life and feeling just like imbued with it. But prior to receiving, when they're still in the womb, there's this unknown of what could happen. Because with birth, there is death, you know, and there's all kinds of things that can happen. So in many ways, it's built into us that with birth, there can be death, you know, and feeling that deeply, it's humbling because we, in those moments where we really face it and reckon with that truth, we don't, we're not in control. I'm not in control. If this is a stillbirth, that's what it is, right? If something happens at the birth, either way, that's what happens. And so it's the acceptance, conscious acceptance of all these potentialities that allows for us to access the potency of this reciprocal relationship with the infinite, with God, and recognize that spark of God within us can become a fire. And that if we fan those flames, it'll dissolve the illusion and the unreality, not only within us, but within others who are near us and within those who can receive uh, the depth of our work in whatever way that might look like, you know? And so in, in this form right now, it's a podcast, right? This is a transmission. This is a prayer. You know, we're speaking into existence, our stories and our stories are going to resonate in others who can pick up similarities to theirs or maybe unlock some things to say, Hey, I never thought about it that way. Or I'm going to try meditation or whatever it might be, you know? And so we become the open door for that fire, that light to shine, that no man can shut because it's born of our own gnosis. You know, it's born of my own revelation. And so that's why when you know, someone comes to my doorstep trying to sell me uh, a religion, or you know, I see someone on the street holding a sign that's trying to guilt me into believing, I recognize and have compassion that like, they're doing the best they know how. They're trying to help as misguided as it might be. And maybe they will help someone, right? It's, it's complex. This reality is complicated. It's a complex reality that we get to live in. And there's um, different paths to home to the creator. But when we find peace in our heart and we find the courage to face whatever we haven't faced in our life by diving into our own healing process and our own healing work, that's what creates the bridge that's what creates a bridge within us between heaven and earth, right? That's what we become the bridge in many ways that others can even cross, but it starts with our heart. And going back to my, my mystical experience and you know, I wasn't on anything. I was completely sober and I was getting, I was getting the itch to, to go score that initiated that process, but I was completely sober at the time. And so it was so powerful. I mean, we have powerful plant medicine ceremonies and breathwork ceremonies and we can enter in altered states, but to really be just in a place where it was prayer, simple request, but an earnest request. And, and God, and God comes. I want to talk about forgiveness because I think a big piece of this whole journey is forgiveness. And I think a lot of people that, you know, may feel like they've been dealt 
a bad hand. Like just listening to your story, I mean, you could easily be in a place of victimhood and why did this happen to me? And the forgiveness journey is 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 an individual journey. And, you know, there's the forgiveness of our parents. There's the forgiveness of self. And then there's this, this forgiveness of God. A lot of people ask like, why is this happening to me? Why God? If God's such a loving God, why am I going through this? And in that moment of you having that mystical experience, it feels like there was this wash of of forgiveness, you know, feeling unworthy, feeling, mm-hmm. you know, not capable of receiving it. Talk a little bit about the importance of forgiveness on this healing journey and what that actually means. Yeah. For me, it wasn't so much a direct forgiveness of God, but it was a receiving of the grace of God. Because I didn't have God in my worldview prior to that in any real way. You know, I know there were, my, my aunt was Christian and, you know, I think I had maybe been to church a handful of times, but just like, this is nuts. These people are believing in this invisible thing. And they, so for me, it was nuts. But in that surrender and receiving God's grace in the form of that experience and communion, it was a expansion to what is and what's possible. And also the just intuitive and it just, I guess it was transmitted to me in understanding that there is no injustice. That all, the, all loving God in, is real and, and God's perfection is true. It's, it's, an, it's perfection unfolding, just getting better and better. And so this moment that we're living is the absolute highest perfection. It's based on our free will, you know, our, our free will as individual beings. It's also based on our karma, I believe, from past lives and, and you know, just this carryover of energy you know, that has to be met and of universal law, you know, these, this container that we get to grow in. Right. And so for me, that had to lead me to reckoning with my emotional world and facing the reality that I had not forgiven my father. I was still, I still had a lot of feelings about my father and yeah, I was living with my mother. And so there was no, like, it was just like a lot of gratitude and feeling like my mother carried the world on her shoulders single mom and raising us and doing her best and seeing her struggle. And eventually though, after reuniting with my father, after he reached out to me and we started cultivating a little bit of a a relationship and I built up the courage to find, find, you know, after over a couple of years of expressing my true feelings about what happened and what went down and, and, um, you know, having my mentor hold space for me to cry those tears of, of grief that my father could not meet as a boy or as a man. And so being able to have a, a, a mentor, a surrogate father to hold that space was I think foundational to me being able to come to a point of forgiveness, forgiving my father on a personal level. Um, I don't feel like there was any, I, I guess there were, was a, a strong feeling of feeling life is unfair growing up the whole time. Life is unfair. And that's why there's no God. If there was an all loving God, life would not be like this. Why is it like that for those people? And why is it like that for us? You know, having this like huge, seeing the massive divide and seeing the suffering, you know, homeless. Why are there homeless in the streets? And why are there people living in mansions? Like, what is this? And um, having to, I think, dive deep into that and reckon with that because now that I was saved when I felt like a miserable, worthless person, human, and God had the mercy to save me, it showed me the depth of love that God has for us. And so that's where I started. I led, I led from that. I'm like, okay, if God's love is unconditional and all loving, then that's my work. That I, that I get to exercise it and practice that as 
a son of God. Mm. That's really what Jesus was teaching, right? Is how do we open our hearts and embody the love of God within ourselves and forgive everybody in real time. And we, 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 we project judgments all the time unconsciously onto the world around us. And the work really is to release, recognize, release those judgments in real time and open our hearts no matter what is in front of us and love others as God loves us yeah. and being able to trans, transmute that. Really, and, and, and Yeshua spoke it best, right? Love our neighbors as ourselves and to pray for those who hate and persecute us. And Yeshua's degree of love, although I didn't, you know, come into experiencing God by way of the Christian church, I've had multiple experiences with Jesus, with Yeshua. And he is one of the, my, my archetypal role models, you know, as, as a, a son of the most high embodying really the most high, you know, he said, I and my father are one. And when he said that he was in full gnosis with the source of all life, you know, he was the wave, but he was also had the power of the ocean in his wave. And that's why he was able to do miracles and raise the dead. And those stories that were spoken about him bring on to this day, because it was literally God embodied. And when he resurrected, right? Because that was the depth of his love that he literally gave his life for us. And although I disagree with the traditional Christian um, theology that he died for our sins, I don't believe that. I mean, in a way, yes, he did die for our sins in a sense that we were primitive and hateful. And once he stopped being who we wanted him to be, we put a crown of thorns on him and mocked him as the Messiah and crucified him and took his life. Uh, because he was really a threat to the system at the time, right? And so in that though, he gave his life for humanity because that was his mission, that he be resurrected, that he shows that there's life after death, that we are the spirit, that it's not just this material life that we're here to live for. And because of that, you know, we have an impetus to live principally by principles, by the principles that were spoke of that he spoke of about what love really is and what that looks like. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple, right? To do good unto others that you would, you would want as done to you. Mm. And his ultimate and final lesson was forgiveness. Forgive them, Father, they for not. they know not what they do. And that's why forgiveness is such a big part of this journey. And I think there's a lot of you know, ideas of, you know, forgiveness and then spiritual bypassing or, or can, can really kind of overlay and seem like the same thing on the surface. Sure, sure. And to get to a real level of forgiveness and just to share a little bit of my own experience with my parents and my dad, I've been working through my, my own father wound in a very deep way and uh, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment and this flood of energy and going on my own path of, of being able to, to feel the level of grief for my father and my parents like the, allowing the image of what I needed them to be, let that die so that I can see them for who they are and, the, and the, the wounds and the trauma that they've experienced and getting to this place of deep compassion and, and forgiveness. And I think this is really powerful for people. And I, I'm just curious to get your perspective on this too, because my, my dad cannot meet me there. And I, I can't ever go, I mean, I'm, I'm holding hope for the, the opportunity that there's this deep reconnection but I can't expect him to meet me there. And part of that forgiveness is fully letting go so I can actually open my heart and love him and see him where he's at without the expectation of, of needing him to meet me there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, the refathering that happens when we really parent the inner child, 
and come into wholeness within to realize that our dad was our dad and he gave us everything that he could, but he simply can't give us what we long for. And it's in our longing for that, which helps some of us at least transcend to the transpersonal and connect with the higher, the greater, the true father, mm-hmm. the all father, right? The great father. And in coming home to the great father, we realize that it was all perfect, that it was completely fair. And it was exactly what our soul needed to expand our love beyond conditionality, right? Cause we know unconditional love with our children, at least to the fullest extent, I feel like that's probably the greatest teacher of unconditional love is becoming parents, becoming a father. Cause it's like, Oh, it's so hard. And I love you no matter what of you, no matter what. And some things take us to the edge. Some, some, things, some things take us to the edge, but it really gives us an opportunity to feel like that co-creative responsibility of stewarding life into the world. Right. And, and that, in some ways that perspective that God has towards us of like, we are young children and it's a process to grow. It's not only just this lifetime, we get to see that cycle of life, you know, from birth to death, but lifetime after lifetime for a soul to cultivate qualities that are more godly, that are more aligned with divinity versus the unconsciousness, right? The self and other destruction, like the chaos, And so really being blessed to continue to evolve in these ways, you know, on every level, right? To evolve emotionally and spiritually and to be able to meet our parents from a different point on the spiral, right? Because it's a spiral and we keep on coming back to things again and again and traumas again and again until it's really cycled through fully and, and, and really discharged. But we come through like, oh, I thought I already healed this you know, as if this is linear one, two, three process and that's the mind, right? It's confounded. It's like, here, this is again. But it was really in, in that healing process and coming home to God that gave me the fortitude to meet the pain. And I thought I was like, yeah, I forgive my dad. That's the bypass part of it. Yeah, of course. I'm, you know, he did his best. But when coming in person and noticing the energy in the body and the crunchiness and the, it's not a smooth and easy thing. And what is that tension? What is this that I'm feeling? And do I have full reign to express myself honestly and lovingly, or do I have to censor myself? Right. And so that was a process of my coming back together with my dad. And that was actually, I think ultimately the ultimatum that I gave him was when we went head to head and I was like, look, I think I brought a, one of my girlfriends to visit him, him on a road trip and he like kind of, I, I think I made us a salad or something. I was making us food and he got really, he got angry. He didn't express it then and there, but he pulled me aside later and was like, you should never be serving um, your, your partner. She should have been the one making the salad and serving us. And that was not how we do things. And it just, my rage came up and I was like, how dare you? try to put this on me and try to tell me how to live and what to do. Look at you, look at your life. You're alone. I don't want the life that you live, dad. And if you want a relationship with me, then don't try to tell me how to live. Don't try to tell me how to live. And I think it was in that, that it was really this like, okay. And it was an acceptance that I don't want his fathering or his input in that way. 
um, and to, you know, tread, tread lightly. Yeah. And making a, making a real boundary from a place of love. Like this is who I am. And if you want to be in my life, then this is how you have to meet me. I don't expect you to change and, and have my view of how I'm going to be, but setting a loving boundary. You got to accept it. You got to accept it. I'm bringing my girlfriend by. I want to make us a nice salad. I can do that without being shamed or judged as doing it wrong. Mm. Not doing what a man should do. Oh, yeah. My, my journey, you're talking to the, the archetype of the father and the archetype of the mother. And, and as I've gone on this healing path with my parents, it's actually been a beautiful journey of reconnecting me with what I desire from my dad and allowing that what I needed him to be to die it has allowed me to reconnect with what I'm really after, which is the, the energy, the archetypal energy of the father, which is, which is father God, which is that almighty, that frequency. And I've just been recently reconnecting with the archetype of the mother as well. And, you know, not necessarily receiving the, the nurturing, the support and the love from my mother. And there's a bunch of different reasons why we had a big family and just, you know, growing up in a nuclear family, like, and the energy of the mother being split between, you know, four kids. Mm -hmm. Of course, I didn't receive the nurturing and the love that I needed. And there was this moment that I looked at when I was, when I was younger, there's these images and there was a pretty traumatic event. And when I was in third grade, I moved schools in the middle of the, the middle of the year, which was really challenging. But then my sister, who's seven years older than me and my half sister, she got kicked out of the house to go live with her dad. And it was, it's a very deep wound within our family and the reverberations I can feel are going out into time in a very visceral and big way. And it wasn't a direct, like it wasn't my trauma. It wasn't a direct trauma of me but I, indirectly, it's one of the biggest traumas in my life because it created this story of I'm not, I'm not safe. Like if I do something wrong, I could get kicked out. And it's interesting as I've gone on this journey, I don't have a lot of memories from that time. But if I look at pictures of when I was in second grade, I was very kind of slim and healthy looking and my energy was just vibrant. And shortly thereafter, I was overweight. I didn't look as healthy. I just looked like distraught. And I can see that in these images. And I've talked to one of my mentors about this. And he said, it's a, it's a natural thing when you go through a mother wound to reconnect with the mother is to, the, the quickest way to do that, to feel that nurturing energy is to, is to eat and to, to consume, to yes. consume. Because when we're in the womb, there's the umbilical cord. The mother, we're provided for by the, by the all caring, all nurturing mother without having to do anything. And so I went into eating and I've really confronted this, this habit of snacking and then my own addictive personality of, of wanting to consume. And I've been having this, this, this moment. I was even walking through my garage the other day because I lived in a van for, for a while, very minimal stuff. And it's fascinating when you have a space, how much stuff starts filling up. And I was like, damn, I have a lot of shit in here. And it got me thinking about how much I consume, not just the food and these substances to kind of feel that nurturing energy, that mothering energy, but how much I consume in life. And it got me reflecting on the greater collective consumerism culture that we live in and how we're so disconnected from the archetype of the mother because the great archetype of the mother is the mother earth. And because we're separated from the mother, we're over consuming with all of the things in our life because we want to fill that nurturing energy that we're provided for. And as I'm taking on this path, we have uh, 72 acres outside of Austin and we're going to start working on growing our own food and reconnecting with the mother and being back in right relation with the land. It's that archetypal reconnection of the reason I am consuming so much and even my addictive personality of when I'm like reaching for cannabis in an unconscious way or, or different things to just subtly numb out. 
It's because I'm looking for that, that connection. And the only way I can really fulfill that in a very deep and visceral way is to reconnect with something as simple as where my food comes from and reconnecting and being in right relation with, with the mother. And I feel like that's a, a journey a lot of us are starting to connect with is how do we get back to the land? How do we get back to the right relation? How do we actually know where our food's coming from? And when you start going down that path, it's it's like the spiral you talked about. There's these deeper layers that are starting to unfold for me and it's very fascinating. So speak to that a little bit, this collective journey that we're on and the, the infinite potentialities of total annihilation and destruction of the planet and 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 the fear that is really there. And then the potentialities on the other side of this great collective awakening and everything in between that is possible, which is, you know, brings us back to this, this fear of the unknown and being able to find comfort and safety through this, you know, coming years, coming decades uh, of the potentialities that are possible. Where are we at? And what's your perspective on, on what's unfolding? Yeah. Thank you. It's such a crucial topic of conversation and of sharing in these times because we know You know, we're really burning the candle at both ends at this point. We have been for a long time and we're reckoning now with generations and generations of consumeristic, wild, capitalistic exploitation and consumption. And really just, it's been blind in so many ways. And of course, there's been voices who are advocating, come to consciousness. Hey, we're destroying the planet or whatever it might be. Um, we're really harming ourselves because this is our environment. The earth is our home. And these pipe dreams of going to other planets are just like, for me, it's like, it's great to inspire wonder and imagination and possibility. But why are we talking about going anywhere when we have this beautiful planet with many places still unexplored um, that really needs our attention and our help and our focus. And so coming back into right relationship with the earth uh, is a step in coming back into right relationship with God, with the source of all things, right? This is the creation that we get to live in and we are God's creation. But we also are here with a unique opportunity to become co-creators. You know, that's what we've been blessed with, um, that spark of the divine that that, that can become a consuming fire, that can consume the illusion that this life is all there is and that there aren't consequences for our actions in this life. And so that there is a clear and objective truth and fundamental alignment that we get to live. And that's, and nature demonstrates for us this beautiful balance, right? That it maintains. There's going to be beautiful springs where there's going to be, you know, abundant harvests and all that we need to thrive. And there's going to be fire and famine as well. And the cyclical nature of life that really was, is within us because we are nature. We are expressions of nature. And yet we are bridges between nature and heaven, right? Heaven and earth, I was saying. And I mean that literally, right? The divine, um, what we are as parts of the super consciousness continuing to evolve and expand and unfold infinitely and eternally. Uh, and so that's what we're a part of. And this is our little nexus of the universe, the earth and our bodies as part of the earth, right? This is our temple. This is our home. Our bodies are. And the soul that we are gets traversed in this temple for this lifetime. And so it's on us. It behooves us to bring it into optimal alignment, right? To not injure it and to also live by those ethical principles of not harming others to the best of our ability, all life, to only take what we need. 
And so that's a part of the consumptive, the unconscious consumption that we need to meet head on with consciousness. And that that's why like becoming closer to our food and understanding where it comes from, that it comes from the earth and it comes from another life, an animal giving its life for us, which calls us to not be wasteful, you know, to really do what we, with, with what we need. You know, um, I forgot who said it, but a sage once said, uh, the world has enough to feed everyone's need, but not our greed. Mm. You know, and it does. All our needs can be met. Every human on earth. But we have to come into right balance and right relationship with the earth and with the Tao, with nature, with God. And I believe that there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, but it really starts simply by having an awareness of where our food comes from, of being able to feel appreciation and gratitude for the abundance that we're blessed with, that we can even have clean air, that we can have a roof over our heads and that we can eat food that can nourish our bodies so that we can carry out uh, the vision that our soul has for our life and what we want to create. Uh Oh, the question is, is how how are we going to get there? Right. And I I know it's because the way we treat the earth is, is really, it's because the way we're treating ourselves. and there's this individual healing process that is necessary to begin reconnecting with these deeper forces within us. And, you know, it seems like there's just so much work to be done. And I know Mm. you are really passionate about, and the work that you do is reintroducing rites of passages and, and ritual process into our society and culture so that, because it seems like we just have a lot of, you know, leaders leading our world, leading our countries, leading our businesses that are just really underdeveloped psychologically. They're immature and they still have this boyhood psychology mm. that hasn't really went through that, gone through that death rebirth process into what it means to be uh, a loving, present spark of this divine creation and one with it and being being a good steward to the journey forward. So talk about some of the work that, that you do and what you're passionate about reintroducing into society and the importance of the rite of passage experience mm. uh, in this greater collective shift that we're moving through. Yeah, I'm, I've been called to hold space. As I was mentioning, as I was train, training to become a therapist, psychologist, that was my really my first experience of officially or formally holding sacred space. You didn't call it sacred space, right? But the therapeutic container, you know, for someone to have the freedom to explore themselves uh, with gentle guidance and, and, and compassionate support. And being able to offer this open space of compassionate witness in a ceremonial or ritualistic container is powerful because it, it speaks to our roots and the power of ritual, like ritual done over time becomes tradition, right? And traditions carry cultures. They, they, they are the, that's the bedrock of culture in many ways is the traditions and what they mean, right? Meaning making. And we're telling our stories by the life that we're living now. And I, I believe in these modern times where really we have the world, the universe at our fingertips in many ways. And of course the inner universe through the power of our breath and our beingness and our meditation. And like we have this divine instrumentation given to us from God to be able to traverse this whole path that we're on, the soul path that we're on. And we're given the body to do, do so in 3D, to do so in the material world. 
And so the how of it, uh, it, it's different for everybody, depending on where they're at in their development and what they're seeking, right? For me at a certain point, it was just to get free of the pain and suffering that I was in and, and seeking the relief to that pain. You know, for a certain time, it was like, how am I going to get free of addiction? And I tried like 12 step groups and I tried different things that did not work for me. 12 step did not work for me, although I, I, I celebrated it. I know it works for many, but just like having to affirm that I'm an addict or an alcoholic every time I'm in a group doesn't feel good. It didn't feel good for the soul that I am. And so I just completely, I just rejected it. Even though I did feel in those groups that there was something happening, it wasn't enough to keep me there. Um, so it's different for everybody, right? The how is different for everybody, but I believe it begins with the desire for more and the courage to, to face what's within to face our past, to really look at our, the life that we've lived objectively as much as we're able to, and to see how perhaps our, the story that we were born into is still playing out unconsciously in ways that harm ourselves and harm others, in ways that really limit our potential of what's possible and keep us, that keeps us from experiencing the depths of love and joy and connectivity that we long for, right? That we try to fill that void by consuming with you're speaking to, right? There's so many addictions under the sun in this world. And there's so much stimulation and addiction because I believe there's a, a big void at the, at the center of so many people, a void where love and God must dwell. And love and God I use interchangeably because God is love at the core. And so the path back home and into right relationship with nature, the earth, with our human family, with the animal kingdom, with, with the plant and mineral kingdom, with this earth, right? The foundation of our existence, the physical substrate that we are evolving in and within. It's going to start with honesty. It's going to start with self-honesty. That's the beginning. And, and as we become honest with ourselves, then there's going to come the point where we're going to have to reckon with our, the emotional world that we have yet to explore fully. We're going to have to reckon with the traumas and the abuses and the pains that we live through, regardless of what it looked like, regardless of whether we had a quote unquote privileged upbringing or not. I know with all my heart that God puts us as souls in the perfect configurations so that we can work through what we're meant to work through and learn what we're meant to learn so that we can become the greatest expression, the greatest possibility of who we are as reflections of the Most High God, as children, as sons and daughters of the Most High. And so there's a, a supreme intelligence operating through all of reality. And so when you spoke about really the contrast of this global awakening and the potential for global ensured destruction on the other side of it and all the different processes and systems that are kind of feeding into this one. Well, we have the power of evolution and of that divine reality guiding the other process. And so nothing happens without divine sanction. And when we have our bedrock, the bedrock of our existence in our faith and our connection to the source of all life, and we've experienced the fact that life doesn't end at the death of our body, that death in the physical is a transition into the next. And when we've experienced that by not only by holding space for that in others, 
but I experiencing our own deaths and even brushes with death and potentially mystical experiences uh, of ourselves as souls outside of our bodies or astral projecting what it feels like to fly. All these different states of being that speak to the energy being that we are, that the soul that we are is beyond time and space. It gives us the ability to hold the high potential of what's possible with this awakening of consciousness that's sweeping through the world, that's inspiring growth on all levels, as well as the momentum, the unconscious momentum from generation after generation of kicking the can down the road, of bypassing, of, of self and other destruction, of blame, of judgment, of war, of exploitation. You know, they come, they're coming to head. And you know, we often hear people saying that there's a spiritual war. There is and there isn't. At the deepest level, there isn't because all there is is God. All there is is love and nothing can stand against God because God is. God is. And so if there's an illusion that believes it's separate from God that manifests as war or genocide or rape or pillage or whatever it might be, that energy will have its time and it'll be dissolved and transmuted by what is because we are evolve, all evolving as what is. And that's the divinity running through us, calling us to integrate our consciousness. And so I have absolute faith that no matter how much destruction we experience, life will go on and I will be part of, the, part of that to the degree that God wills and to the degree that I'm willing to meet the challenges and call to greater alignment and greater alignment and death to humble myself that it's God's will be done, not mine, not my separate desire, but God's will. And it's my responsibility as a man now, as a father, as a lover, as someone who holds space for this work to like live my life fully. That's my primary responsibility that I live my life authentically and in honor of the God that's evolving through me and through others. So that's the primary right there. And moving into my work in the world, my vocation, my mission, my purpose, my service. It's simply to meet others in the truth of who I am and creating the containers, right? The context, the structure that can allow them to have personal revelation. That can allow them to feel free to heal, to grieve, to rage, to feel the fullness of who they are and also to let go and die to who they are not. Because that's the process that I went to that called me into living the fullness of life that I'm here to live. And so holding that safe space for the inner child, it's all a part of it, right? And the rites of passage are these beautiful, this, this beautiful technology in a sense that can initiate the energy that we are into another state to literally transform it in a very quick time in a very short amount of time, these ceremonies, these initiations, they imbue a psychic power and energy that takes us from one dimension of existence and relating to another. And that's why, you know, people go through, you know, let's say these traditional ones like a bar mitzvah or a quinceanera, right? We still have some of these in, in our modern culture. And it's a shift, right? In how we perceive ourselves and how, how the community around us perceives us. And so with each of these shifts or initiations, it translates into the life that we're going to live, you know, our approach to reality, because a boy is going to live much differently 
than a young man who now is taking on the responsibility of manhood to some degree to the extent that they're, that they're able to. And so it's important to re- reintroduce these modern rites of passage uh, in new ways that people can connect with, you know, because maybe we're, we're not in a place where we need to uh, threaten another person's physical life because we no longer have that tribal container, right? The U.S. and the world through globalism and through travel have become so small. We're all so interconnected. And so what does the ancient future look like? for us to bring forward the best of the ancient world into a context that can support us into moving into the future in a good way, in a holistic way. And so that's really the thrust of my work is this reunion you know, between us and God and to, to really integrate all different parts of us, you know, the inner child, the teenager, the internalized different archetypes or mother archetype or father archetype, We've learned so much simply through osmosis, simply in being in our family and growing up and having our subconscious templated in such a way where we inherit epigenetically our ancestral codes, right? It's been passed on generation after generation and we get to choose as soon as we come to consciousness of whether we want to carry on a tradition or a cycle of relating or a belief or if we want to create new ones and new stories and show our children something different. And so in many ways, we are the heirs of ways of living and relating, which were destructive, which destroyed the earth, which didn't honor that this earth is finite. You know, we thought we could just take and take and take without consequence. And I believe that we're learning otherwise now and we're seeing the, the truth that, oh, wow, we don't have the same amount of abundance resource-wise as we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's very apparent, you know, with the growth of humanity to 8 billion now. And we need to be more intentional with how we consume and how we generate. Can we be become those new nodes of this golden age consciousness, right? Of a new earth, of an ancient future where we are living in right relationship with nature where we're really living in right relationship with our fellow men and women and children. And we're creating the foundation for life to grow in alignment versus the foundations that many of us grew in, which took us off course from the very beginning. And so coming back to natural birthing practices, to recognizing that we don't need so many interventions, that women embody so much power that they are blessed by God, the creator, to bring forth new life and to have this experience of taking some cells, right? Sperm and egg and creating life and birthing life through them. You know, and that process is sacred. And seeing Devana, you know, we've, we've parented three children together and they're, they're young. Cairo's five, nature's two, and Zion's newborn. But seeing her trust in her body after having had an emergency C-section and being in the system and going, that was wrong, that wasn't needed, I didn't get to do it my way, even though she went to the container thinking that, yeah, natural birth within a hospital, I'm going to be the first or I'm going to do it my way. It didn't end up that way. And so having the emergency C-section was her initiation, you know, under general anesthesia. She was knocked out. She wasn't present for the birth. Mm-hmm. I was in traffic trying to get there. So that was like where we were at with our first child. And the next one was nature out here in Dripping Springs, in the woods on 10 acres, you know, the old way of 
receiving life without any intervention. We didn't even know if he was going to be a boy or a girl. It was just full trust. There's no checkups. It was a, what they call a wild pregnancy, which is really just a pregnancy in the old days. Right? Yeah, they call we it a wild we, pregnancy. Yeah, <laughs> a wild pregnancy. Natural now. pregnancy. Yeah. But, you know, coming back to our roots, there's mm. so much wisdom in our roots and in the traditions that we come from that have many times been, you know, ridiculed or even wiped out from the church or from modern medicine and laughed at as like, oh, that's folklore or those are just, you know, wives tales or whatever. But there was a lot of wisdom uh, in, in our lineages. And so a part of that reclamation is looking back into history and like what wasn't included in the textbooks, right? And there's many different sources where we can study and reclaim these essential parts of our humanity and the different traditions that infuse the beauty of this complex world that we get to live in. Right? This is our evolutionary schoolroom, so to say. And so while I don't know how long it'll be until we get to live in this like kind of golden age where there's a reorientation around the sacred and an understanding that you know, we are all sons and daughters, no matter our, our faith, no matter our background, no matter our physical appearances, no matter our aptitudes, we are all from the same source. And for that to be an underpinning in how we understand life and each other. Because if that's at the foundation that we all come from the same source and that fundamentally speaking, we all want to live a beautiful life. So our responsibility in these times, I believe, is to live that fully in our own unique way and to build bridges between other people who share similar visions. You know, And I believe that that's like the greatest work we can do. And from that connectivity, that unity, that collaboration is going to come so many beautiful things. And so a lot of my work is rooted in collaboration as well. You know, we can't do this alone. We're on this beautiful, beautiful journey of life and we need each other. And that's like the old story that so many of us men grew up in that we got to figure it out on our own. You know, we become lone wolves and we suffer in these prisons of shame and we isolate ourselves in so many ways we do. And usually we go to the feminine, right? We feel safe with the feminine, that we can be vulnerable, that we can cry, that we can share our real selves with them. But then simultaneously, we feel the judgments that we've internalized from the masculine, from our fathers, from the old stories, that men can't cry, that that's weakness to feel. It was for them. It was survival in many ways. But we get to break those cycles now and demonstrate for our children what it, what it looks like to be a whole man, to be a whole multidimensional man who has his roots in the sacred and who's oriented around the creator that knows himself to be an individualized expression of the most eye and to carry ourselves with that level of humility, but also majesty that we have the courage and the confidence to create what we're here to create. You know, and that's, that was the genesis of sacred sons. It was my faith and that gnosis and God imparting to me that I'm here for more. And when, after having Cairo two two days after Kai was born, having that vision overlaid in the 64 men that I was facilitating and leading of, wow, these are my son's uncles because these are my brothers. And now these are more than my brothers. These are my son's uncles. And they're crying and they're grieving and they're hugging and they're sharing themselves in ways they've never shared. And this is the key. And then and there, that was the prayer of God. 
If you want me to focus on men's work, then find me a space where I can facilitate weekly men's circles. My brother, Franco Vescovi, who, who created Bishop Ropery, um, Bishop Rotary, a tattoo machine, and also created a Vatican Studios a tattoo shop. It's where Sacred Sons, the genesis of Sacred Sons happened and where, where I really became consistent. Because up then I was dabbling in men's work for a couple of years and leading and facilitating in a variety of capacities. But that was where it crystallized as I became a father. This is what I'm here for. And I have divine providence behind me. And that vision continued growing, expanding. And so I'm at a point now where after several years of holding all men's spaces, I feel inspired and called to facilitating the masculine and feminine space, which is really the richest dynamic. And that speaks to the roots of my um, training and holding space in the group therapy space, holding space for men and women where their dynamic is really rich. And we don't, we, we don't immediately achieve that safety in an all men's container, removing the feminine. That's one of the blessings that we receive is like, oh, wow. I feel free to explore my, my relationship with the feminine here it's a safe space and I'm around my brothers and I have a lot of rage and anger and, and they can hold me in it. They're calling me actually into it to feel all the stuff that I feel and to face my misalignments and to speak my truth. Yeah, and so really that's the edge that I'm riding now. I'm you know, initially receiving the vision for Sacred Sons with the vision, along with that vision of doing men's work was also the realization and understanding that I was here to build the groundswell for men to reclaim the sacred, that we are all sacred. All life is truly sacred. And when we can live from that place, it creates a space within us where we can meet each other, right? The namaste, namaste. The God within me sees the God within you and honors the God within you, you know, and to expand that and to be in a container where that's the foundation, you know, that we are here on this journey and we can meet each other in this sacred way and do this work together as peers, as travelers on this long path home. And when the masculine and feminine come together, you know, all of life is there. All of our, our past experiences are there and come with us into that container. And so usually in a masculine and feminine container, there's going to be guards. There's going to be defenses. And so the real work that I'm called into that I'm facilitating and seeing now is creating that safe and sacred space for us as men and women to see each other and to behold each other and to allow each other to come back to our birthright and to come back to innocence, to seeing each other with the eyes of innocence. And to be able to do that requires us to face through and move through the traumas, the triggers, the anger, the hurt, the betrayal, the hate, the grief, and to come back to the joy and the love and the ecstasy that we create here between men and women, right? That we can create in that synergy of masculine, feminine, yin and yang. So I'm here for that. I'm here for this reunion, this sacred reunion, as I like to call it, that's happening. You know, that's part of this collective evolution that we're witnessing, this expansion of consciousness in all the different realms of awareness. Aho, brother. Aho. I just want to honor you so much for, first, the work you, you, you're you doing with Sacred Sons is, is so powerful, so needed, so expansive. And I can just see the energy. It's been cool to witness the impact that it's having in, in men's lives 
and the ripples that it's sending out into the collective because it's really the work that is needed. And I want to honor you as the leader to not be satisfied with that and not to find stagnancy within, okay, I'm finding success in this 3D world and getting, you know, it's so easy to get too attached to like this business is, is growing from the business side. And a lot of people they can get the, the the mission and purpose can get eroded into the success and and get stagnant. And so for you as a leader and a visionary is to continue to feel into what's the next iteration? How do we expand this? What's the greater work that's being called through me and not attaching to, I, I found my thing and this, I can I can grow this thing and it's great. And we've created a system and a process that's really resonating with people and having an impact. But what's next? And I, I just want to honor you for that because I think that takes a lot of courage. Thank you for seeing me, brother, and honoring me there. And uh, as you honor me, I need to honor uh, my co-founders and all the leaders within Sacred Sons for carrying on the torch and showing up to the mission. You know, because it's been seven years for me in men's work at this point and five years, almost five years with Sacred Sons that, you know, took to, to reach this juncture of full acceptance that, yeah, more is calling me forward. And it was planted, the seed was planted at the beginning of the vision for Sacred Sons that when I received that, it was that, we need to create spaces for this alchemical transformation of men to take place, this reorientation to take place so that we can meet the feminine because there's been a prayer that's been prayed from, I don't, for, I don't know how long from the feminine that they can just be safe and then be free to be who they are and to have the safety to flow and to follow their evolutionary birthright to be the feminine, to be held, to be protected so that they can be in rapture, so that they can nurture, so they can be the divine mothers and feminine that they're meant to be. But they can't be that and express that and live that if they're not safe, if they live in a world where they're not safe. And so many women have been abused in a variety of ways. And we hear about it in so many ways, you know, that there's just this ongoing abuse uh, of the feminine. And we see it in the systems and structures of our world, right? Where, the woman is even written out of religion, right? We got the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, where's the mother? Where's the mother? Right? And so coming back to the wholeness that we are here to live, you know, it behooves us as men to really hold that space. And so I celebrate every man's sacred sons. I mean, I believe sacred son is an archetype, right? This is really what the vision is about. It's a reclamation of our sacred, that we are all sons of the most high living God. And thus we are responsible for the masculine piece of this universal play, right? To be able to hold the structure and the safety and the protection that women need to flow and to feel free to thrive and to nurture our children. This beautiful balance that we see in some intact cultures, right? Some cultures still carry this way of living and relating. And it's not perfect because we live in these times now where we are confronted with the evolution of technology and how that informs our world. And so how do we meld it all together in a beautiful harmony, right? And so really, I think it takes men's work. I think it takes women's work, masculine and feminine alchemy. And I believe where I'm being called into is the masculine and feminine unity work, is the work where we can meet each other in the broken pieces and find our wholeness within, find our wholeness within the reflections of each other and to really come back to this new global village, this ancient future that we are being called to live, where we can really forgive the, the abuses of the past and recommit 
to living in full integrity and alignment in ways that, you know, cause we're still learning, we're still navigating such murky space between the masculine and feminine because of these long-standing generational cycles of abuse and domination and exploitation. We're all heirs of this world. And so to be able to alchemize that within ourselves and to be able to share that with others, I believe for me, at least this is my greatest calling right now. Of course, being a father and, and being a mirror, being a mirror for all those who I come across of the divine, that the divine in you, that I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to hold space for that to grow and that fire to burn because that's what we need because we have so much judgment in this world of like cancel culture. And like, really when we're coming from a place of judgment, we're coming from a place of separation and we're not in a mature place. We're not mature enough to be able to hold all the different multidimensional experiences that humanity is having. Everybody's coming from a completely different vantage point and we all have the same destination, which is home, home in the heart. And so for me to be able to create containers and spaces where men and women can do that and we can hold space for each other is my greatest honor and my, my highest calling. And so just really honoring um, everybody out there doing the work, everybody out there leading the way. We, we live in a beautiful community here in Austin. I'm just back from the Fit for Service Summit in Montana. Shout out to Aubrey and the crew. And Sacred Sons events are popping off all around the world. We're in Europe, we're in Mexico, we're all across the US. And so... There's a need, you know, there's a prayer that we're answering for the return of these ways of being in community, which can nourish us all. You know, the sum is greater than the parts. You know, the sum total is greater than the parts individually. And so this is a call to unity, a call to community, a call to work through the long-standing traumas that we've inherited from our parents and their parents and their parents ad infinitum. You know, and, and when every... When each, when a man or a woman is courageous enough to answer that call and to say, I got work to do. It's a beautiful thing because it sets in motion these ripples that will become waves, these healing waves that the collective can surf on into higher and higher levels of consciousness and unity. Ooh. <laughs> My man. <laughs> Holy cow. Here we go. Here we go. Here what we a time go. to be alive. Yes, you know? I. Aho, bro. We're coming up on the time, and I just want to honor you in the deepest of ways. It's been so incredible to connect with you over the last few months and just, you know, witnessing the work you do uh, from the outside and, and just to get a piece of who you are, some of your stories, some of the wisdom that was earned through the experience of life. It wasn't, it wasn't just gifted to you. It was earned through... The, the, the challenges and the trauma and the, the desire to know thyself mm. and to answer the call on your heart, which takes a ton of courage and the work that you're showing up and you're just not stopping. There is a lot of work to do and there is. to be connected with you. And, and, and I'm just so inspired, man. And I'm so grateful that you came with an open heart and you allowed that wisdom mm. and that frequency to come through. I know whoever's listening to this, holy cow. <laughs> like, uh, I know if you're not feeling like some type of frequency in your body, uh, you know, check in. Because, <laughs> holy cow, bro. I, I just want to honor you. Keep doing the work, man. And I'm here in full support of what you're mm -hmm. doing. And I'm excited to be on this journey with you. We're in such alignment. And I know that we're, we're going to be, be doing things yes, uh, well into the future, bro. Hey, thank you. Love you, brother. So grateful to be here with you in ceremony. Uh, prayers up for the highest unfolding for everybody listening and everybody not. Let's go.
Oh, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Uh, they can find me on my Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active. Albert Bastia. That's A-U-B-E-R-T-B-A-S-T-I-A-T. And uh, they can find Sacred Sons at the Sacred Sons Instagram and also website. Um, I'm in the process of building my website right now. And there's links on my Instagram where you can connect with me deeper. Beautiful. Check it out. And if you're listening to this and anything in this conversation inspired you in any way, and maybe a friend, family member, colleague came up into your awareness, you thinking that they would really be inspired or some part of this conversation might have an impact on their life, go ahead and share it with them because that's really what this podcast is all about. It's a transmission, which Albert alluded to. The frequency that just came through in this episode is very powerful. And let's get it to the people that we love. If you feel called, uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, a great way to support it is leave a five-star review and uh, follow, subscribe, so you don't miss upcoming episodes with incredible guests like Obear here. Make sure you follow him. All of his contact stuff will be in the show notes, and he's got some really cool things he's working on, and you're definitely going to want to be involved in what he's got going on. <laughs> Appreciate you, bro. Talk to you next time. Yeah, brother. <laughs>